0: Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.
1: Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Lucy Houndsom. Folk horror has been growing in popularity these past years, and it's not hard to see why. Writers take pastoral settings such as windswept hills or rugged seacoasts and imbue them with a sense of deep isolation. Throw in a community that seems at first utterly safe and then totally bonkers to outsiders, and you've got the start of something that is recognisable as folk horror. But as folk horror is becoming more widespread, so it's changing as it grows. Writers are taking elements we love and imbuing them with new ideas. In particular, female characters are starting to nudge aside the men who traditionally took centre stage in this subgenre and demand their own share of the limelight. Joining us today to talk about her book Loot, which does indeed put a female protagonist front and centre, is Jennifer Thorne. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work.
2: Hi there. I'm Jennifer Thorne. Um, I am the author of folk horror novel, Loot, as you mentioned. Um, I've also written um, several young adult contemporary comedies um, and a picture book, Construction Zoo. So I write all over the place. Um, I've also co-written the historical adventure, The Antiquity Affair with Lee Kelly. Um, and my next two novels are Diavola, um, coming out from Titan and from Nightfire next year. And uh, The Starlets coming out from Harper Muse.
1: Um, what genres are those two new novels?
2: So, Diavola is a travel ghost story, um, sort of horror comedy, uh, has a lot of bite to it. And The Starlets is another sort of historical romp about uh, two 1950s Hollywood actresses who find themselves on the run from the mob um, while shooting a historical epic in, in Italy.
1: I love how they're all different and you're like, I refuse to be pigeonholed. I'm just going to write what the hell I want.
2: (laughs) Yeah, including construction zoo. And my kids were (laughs) really mad I never wrote another picture book.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm feeling that a folk horror picture book has to be the way forward. That would be amazing. I'd love one of those.
2: That's a brilliant (laughs) idea.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we discussed folk horror last year with author Tori Bovellino. Uh, from the perspective of short stories and American folk horror. So I thought an interesting element would be to start off by asking you one of the questions that we post to her, which is just what is folk horror? Because are there defining elements that need to be included for someone to say, yes, that is a folk horror novel? Or do you think it's more subjective than that?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, people have really wildly varying definitions of folk horror, um, and I never thought of myself as a particularly pedantic person, but I think I'm m- probably more specific than most about what I consider folk horror, um, to such an extent that I don't think I will ever write another folk horror because it would just be too similar to loot. Um, to me, it is um, an isolated setting, steeped in tradition, a tight-knit community. Um, And the horror stems from the community or the place, not any kind of external monster. Um, And the central character is an outsider who is learning of the rituals, the traditions for the first time and is unable to escape it.
1: You talked about there being not any external factors, which made me Wonder about one particular element of your novel. So a lot of folk horror is man-made. It's one set of humans being cruel to another set of humans, usually due to a certain set of values. I mean, you think of The Wicker Man from the 1970s or the more recent Midsummer, something like that. Um, But yours has a more sort of fantastical, supernatural element to it that is interwoven with why people are being horrible to each other. So still being pretty mean to each other, but there's also an element of the deaths involved in your book have a, a bit more of a supernatural side of it. So what made you think, you know what, I know what my folk horror novel leads, some supernatural beings, that's where I'm going to go.
2: Well, it actually, I think it came about the other way. I think I accidentally wrote a folk horror novel, to be honest. Um, you know, the the concept came first, an island where every seven years on the same day, seven people die in accidents. Um, and it, the concept came from a really Uh, personal circumstance for me that I was, um, I had had several people that were loved ones die very suddenly. Um, and it it was a way of kind of exploring grief and mortality and how we, uh, react in the face of, of death, um, both in the, the sense of losing people we love and having it come for us and for our children. How do we respond? Um, and then over the course of writing it, I thought, oh no, oh my gosh, I'm writing a folk horror novel and it hadn't occurred to me. Um, I had thought I was writing something gothic, but didn't wind up going that way. Um, but once I realized that, I decided to make it kind of an answer to folk horror, kind of a, um, almost a, a counter argument. Um, to me, folk horror is often about uh, the individual against the collective. And um, in that way, it kind of mirrored what I was seeing in terms of American right wing discussion um, of, you know, I'm going to protect myself and my kids against, you know, the mob. There's this this American viewpoint among the right wing of, um, you know, it's up to me to defend my family. It's up to me to, you know, to to protect myself against society and and, you know, groupthink and um, and. I wanted to take a different tack and kind of defend the community, defend the collective. Um, And in some senses, it's kind of an anti-folk horror novel because in the end, the monster winds up not being what you think it is at the beginning. You know, if without giving too much away, the the real monster winds up being the person that would probably in, in another folk horror movie or novel be the hero. Um, That person is actually the greatest threat. I must admit,
1: I really enjoyed that twist um, and how it kind of came around again. And like you say, it's really difficult to talk about this novel without giving away too many elements of um, spoilers. Because like you say, if you get into it too deeply, we start giving all spoilers. And it was a really great book, which I think fans of
0: folk horror should definitely read.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think... Oh, I think what I was trying to do, and this is part of what you mentioned, the sort of uh, the female protagonist aspect of it. Um, I think there is a certain different viewpoint that you have coming into it as sort of a woman facing these circumstances versus a man with that kind of macho view of, you know, no, I've got to fight this. This is wrong um, that a certain character has. This is hard to discuss without giving spoilers, actually. (laughs) You you know, you mentioned people um, being awful to each other, but I'm not sure that that's actually true in Lute. Um, I think that the book sets up the expectation because you know the format, you know Wicker Man. You think, oh gosh, these people are all buying into this horrific thing. They must be terrible. Um, But I think from my perspective, at least, in the end, they're all really lovely (laughs) and they're all kind of right um, to carry on with their... I mean, and I leave that up to the reader But from my perspective as the author, they're the heroes. I mean, that's what I meant by too many spoilers, because
1: you're right. At the end, there is a stronger sense of community than there is at the beginning. But certainly at the very beginning, it feels like everybody is ganging up on the main protagonist and that she's kind of being pressurized into a place and a situation and a status that she doesn't want. So even though it twists at the end and that's not exactly what's going on. That's certainly how it feels for a good chunk of the novel. So that's where I was kind of coming from is like, it's, it's still
2: got that element within there, even though it twists towards the end. Um, Yeah. And you're very much in Nina's head for the book, um, who is this American who has uh, joined the island kind of just in time for this ritual day. Um, But, you know, she sort of has to get out of her own way. You know, she's an outsider, But she's not as much of an outsider as she believes herself to be. Um, She has felt like an outsider her whole life because of family trauma and, you know, things that happened in her past that further ostracized her. Um, But for her to get through the day, as it's called, uh, she really needs to recognize that everyone actually is accepting her. She's the one that's holding herself apart. So when it comes to the day itself,
1: I think a key question that will go through a reader's mind is why don't people leave the island? So like as the author, how do you go about ensuring that readers believe that people would willingly stay and face
2: death? I mean, it's a fair question because they've got like seven years to prepare to leave <laughs> if they want to. It, it's only every seven years, you know, what day it's going to be. It's a pretty conscious decision uh, for most people, not for Nina, cause she didn't know, but, um, so first of all, there is the su- supernatural aspect that in the days leading up to the day, it gets increasingly hard to leave. Um, forces kind of collude to break down engines, keep you there. But at the same time, people do leave. Um, you know, Hugh, her, um, Nina's husband, his sister and mom wound up leaving. Um, but I think once you leave, that's kind of it. You can't come back and forth. You've, you've made your decision because um, you just really won't be a welcomed member of the community anymore. And um, I think what you see, hopefully you see, by the end of the novel is that there is real value in belonging to a place like Lute, belonging to the community. Because at the, the day is just a distillation of life. We're all going to die. We're all going to lose loved ones. Um, they just happen to know that it's probably going to happen on this one day. Um, and to have a community of people who are willing to face death and loss together in a positive way while sort of celebrating in some ways makes for a, a beautiful place to live. Um, there are sort of questionable values that they get from this and benefits, you know, that they are uh, more wealthy, that they have, they the weather is better, that they're safe from invasion throughout history. Um, and you can sort of argue back and forth whether those are actually, you know, empirically able to be um, calculated as, yes, this is definitely outside the realm of normal. But I think the real benefit And the reason that people stay and face this down is because it ties them together. And um, there's a lot of strength in living in a place where everyone has been through the same experience and everyone chooses to continue and to be together through it again.
0: Okay. But when it comes to folk horror, you know, we often do think about isolation. But you're talking about, you know, a real kind of community spirit. It might be a little bit of a creepy and and weird community spirit, but it's certainly, you know, there is that massive feeling of community. So how do you go about keeping this kind of isolation feeling and, you know, because obviously you, you have the island, so that's isolated geography. But if you've got this community and it feels so community, is it just the fact that this is an outsider coming there or are there other aspects of isolation within an otherwise seemingly community spirit?
2: Well, I think if you're, you know, especially, you know, a Floridian coming into a rural English island deep in the Bristol Channel that has traditions stemming from pre-Roman times, you're going to feel pretty weirded out and isolated. Um, I mean, even as an American moving to Britain, you know, a very normal village, there are things that people bring up to me, you know, like, Reality shows or like TV presenters. And I get this feeling of vertigo of just, I have no idea what that reference is. And you feel very othered. So, you know, that aspect of it, the sort of expatriate immigrant experience um, is very isolating for Nina. But again, I think that she's someone who has, uh, you know, been told throughout her life that she is different, that she is other, um, that she's unlovable to some extent, that she's useless. Um, and it's not coming from her community now. Um, you know, I think she's she sees herself as potentially victimized by how different everything is there. But the truth is she's in a much better position to um, become an insider uh, than her husband is. You see this, interestingly, in Midsummer as well, which I watched after I wrote this book, um, which was probably a good thing because I might have taken it off in different directions if it had been an influence. But, uh, you know, it is interesting that that, again, has a female protagonist who winds up becoming, you know, an insider who, you know, it's horrific, the things that happen in Midsummer, And, I mean, really, really upsetting
0: film, (laughs) but it's probably arguably a really happy ending for the heroine. (laughs) Do you think that changes kind of the f- the folk horror traditional story? Because at least from my perspective, when it comes to folk horror, it's often, you know, the isolation and then something that continues to be sort of isolating by the end. But in your story and in sort of Midsummer, you've got kind of the acceptance and kind of a strength from it. How do you think that plays in with kind of the the your more traditional view of folk horror?
2: Well, I think if Hugh were the protagonist of the book, it would be pure folk horror, um, and it would be the traditional one. But Nina comes at it from a different perspective, um, and again, you know, without getting too political, because it was just sort of the initial influence. I think there is this kind of. American right-wing perspective on community, that, you know, you're in it for yourself um, and that you've got to kind of fend off the hordes in order to protect your family and yourself. But it's really your family as an extension of yourself. Community doesn't come into it at all. Whereas uh, my perspective as, you know, a young parent at the time of writing it and um, a woman and you know, someone probably more on the left side of the political spectrum, um, I saw a huge value in community. And it seems like that, that kind of perspective of fearing death and, you know, walling yourself off and um, against the others um, in the face of, of potential calamity, um, that's actually more of a threat to me than the kind of the the threat of the community banding together um, and you know i mean that's not to say that like i'm on the side of the villagers from the wicker man because they were absolutely insane um, I, and <laughs> i'm not like advocating for people being burnt alive in a giant wicker man um, i just want to make that clear but I think that often folk horror does set up this paradigm of like group bad, tradition bad, especially pagan. So you have this kind of like pagan versus Christian, you know, you have like the city person coming into the countryside and it's like, you know, the, the people who are in touch with like history and nature um, and who are sort of a less civilized element are the threat. Whereas, um, you know, like the sort of Christianized Uh, civilized person coming in. It's the only sane person that can kind of rally against it. Um, Which again is kind of a right-wing perspective in some ways, you know, like, you know, if people sort of follow the environment and, and sort of older traditions, that doesn't make them, you know, stupid or wrongheaded or backwards. Um, It's just, you know, a choice.
1: You mentioned just now watching Midsummer after you'd um, <laughs> written the book um, and beforehand you and I were chatting about the, the trinity of folk horror, um, Blood and Satan's Claw, The Wicker Man and Witchfinder General. Um, and there's also some ideas that, you know, Thomas Hardy wrote some, some folk horror as well and we've got modern day Andrew Michael Hurley and things. So I wondered, given that you've written all this other stuff and then suddenly gone, you know what, I'm going to write, well, not I'm going to write a folk horror novel, but I'm going to write this novel. And oh, look, it's folk horror. Um, Who were your inspirations? What did you, what books and films and series did you look at and go, you know what? I'm going to see what other people have done. What, what kind of influenced you, even if you didn't take it in and use it in the novel?
2: Well, I think the lottery is obviously a huge influence. I mean, every American school child reads that short story and comes away with a different perspective on it. Um, It's absolutely brilliant. Um, So, I mean, I think even, you know, Nina sort of walking through the events of this story would think, Oh my gosh, this is just like the lottery, isn't it? Um, So that was, that was an influence. Daphne du Maurier is an influence on everything I write. Um, Not anything that she she's written in particular, but the way that, her um, her short stories in particular set up an expectation of what the threat is and then subvert it. Um, I really love that um, as well as her character work. Um, I mean, even kind of hot fuzz is an influence of uh, you know the, the person coming into the oh, town yeah. with a strange. Trish. I yeah. love hot. hot fuzz. It's done so well. <laughs> Great. I mean, and that's folk horror. It is. It's like a cop thing, but a comedy. But it's folk horror. It is. Um but then there's you know the other things that are kind of the um folklore seeping into everyday life um like have you ever read uh, the trod by Algernon Blackwood um it, it's in this collection called Fearsome Fairies which I absolutely loved um but it is this kind of person with a sense that there's another world just beyond just under the veil of of this one that is um that, and you, he sort of feels the call of it um, and he goes to this village where people are like you don't walk on the trod. that's where the, they the shining ones go. Um, and that was an influence as well in terms of the the supernatural elements and this and the way that people kind of go about their everyday lives and carry on, but still with a real wariness and awareness that there's something else just beyond the veil. Do you know, it's really interesting because
1: a friend of mine is a book collector and he got an incredibly rare copy of some Black Blackwater, which included the trod. And I was like, that sounds amazing. I want to read it, but I can't afford the huge amount of money you spent on this one. So it's good to know where that, that story could be sourced. So I can now go and find it. Fearsome Fairies, did you say?
2: Yeah, it's great. I, I mean, it's the, the style of stories is all over the place. Some are completely bonkers, Um, which is great. And some are very sort of accessible um, and until it twists and you realize that you've been sort of pulled into this kind of madness of the story. Um, Yeah. I've always loved the kind of dark folklore um, aspects, especially in terms of, you know, British folklore and the she and the Fae being really kind of ominous forces.
1: Yeah, Fears and Fairies is on my um, wish list and has been for a while because it's one of the British Library collections. And like you say, they have such a wide variety of stuff. Whoever they get to edit them, it's just amazing the collections they manage to put together. I am putting it in my basket. (laughs) Not my Amazon basket. My Waterstones basket, of course. (laughs) Not the small people and and not the big conglomerates.
2: For a second, I thought you meant small people like fairies.
1: (laughs) Well... I think I'm gonna reserve my judgment as to which fairy I'm supporting before, <laughs> before I support some of them. So some of them are like, yeah, totally behind it. Other like, yeah, no, I don't want those. <laughs> Fairies are just there's so much wonderful folklore and stories about them. Just a never-ending resource for writers. They're just fabulous.
0: So you mentioned some of the, you know, extreme right-wing views as kind of an inspiration or at least a a way that you were discussing <laughs> In discussion with folk horror and it just occurred to me you know that kind of almost like insular um attitudes and and the way that they view the society around them makes for potentially an interesting kind of folk horror but set in an urban setting set in a city you could potentially have the same kinds of kind of community ties and and the way that that folk horror makes you feel but somehow in a big city i mean do you think it is possible to have a kind of folk horror story that isn't set in The countryside isn't set in in one of these kinds of supposedly backwards, traditional, whatever, you know, is it possible to do that within, I don't know, Washington, D.C. or, you know, one of a a bigger city that is experiencing these kinds of echo chambers that we're getting politically nowadays? Well, now I want to write that, (laughs) first of all.
2: um, I think that, I think that you could do it. I think that the challenge would be um, that folk heart is so tied to the land. It's so tied to sort of the, um, you know, who was here first uh, before, before man created skyscrapers and central park and everything else. Um, That being said, I think you could use, you know, you could set it in New York and use central park as um, you know, a place for ritual and connection. Um, The question would be what is the community and why is it not then affected or kind of, um, diluted by the outside influences of everything else going on in the city? I mean, um, and to me, like a cult book is is different. Um, even an occult book is different. Like if it was sort of like a coven, um, to me, that wouldn't be folk horror. So I don't know. I think you, I think you could do it. I think it would be, um, you would need to sort of outline the parameters of it really specifically. Um, And it would be interesting actually to have the outsider be somebody, you know, moving to the city for the first time and kind of subvert it that way.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. It was just a, that was a random thought that popped into my head. So there we go. (laughs) I mean, could maybe like, you know, people could, You know, there could
2: be some sort of kind of worship of the old gods in a city because people are coming from different places and it could be academics. I'm just like sitting here plotting a book now.
0: (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, I hope to be included in the acknowledgements. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. So you have a proactive
1: woman front and centre of your novel, which is something that is a bit lacking in older uh, examples of folk horror. Are female characters more active and interesting? Do you think in modern folk horror?
2: I think so, but I think it also changes, you know, the angle on it. Um, you know, like I mentioned with Midsummer, um, and I think um, Nina is a character who is has not been proactive for most of her life. This is her chance to step up, um, and. But she doesn't do it in the same way, kind of the traditional hero of a folk horror novel would. Um, When you know, when presented with what's happening, I think the reader might go, you know, be sort of rooting for her to go fight back or get out of there. And she doesn't either of those things. But she's proactive in a different way. You know, she she becomes what the island needs her to be, and that um, is maybe how she survives. Um, Maybe she would have. You know, I don't want to give away whether she dies or not. Let's put it that way. But uh, I think that a female perspective does change the angle on folk horror. Um, for example, she is a young mother. She is um, deeply kind of uh, insecure about that. She has staff who help with the kids, and she starts to feel like it's a judgment on her, like she's not doing enough, Um that she doesn't love being a mother enough. And that's, that's definitely stems from my own experience of motherhood, that you have this kind of ideal of what a mother is meant to be and nobody can possibly match up to it. But she's uncomfortable with the idea of kind of leaning on a community to help her with motherhood. Um, because it's just not how she was brought up. And it's not really the American ethos. American society is so siloed. You take care of your family in your house and you don't ask for help from anybody. Um, so she, it takes her a long time to kind of um, become comfortable with the fact that people are helping because that's what you do. That's what, in this Culture of this community, everybody steps in and helps each other. So her journey to being a proactive hero is doing just that: um, opening herself up to to talking to people in a vulnerable way, helping others, um, welcoming them in, making herself vulnerable in that way, which is very different from a male kind of hero's journey of you know standing up for himself and sort of fighting against the world. For her, it takes courage to welcome them in.
1: Well, that sounds like an absolutely perfect place to stop our discussion. And I really enjoyed Loot. It's been a really good folk horror story. And I sincerely hope you write some more in the future.
2: Thank you so much.
0: It's been great to be here. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.